demonstrate things incorrectly. That's today's guest, award-winning Broken Arrow director, Darren Davis, with a surprising and effective suggestion for your next rehearsal. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire, here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about Mr. Davis. Darren Davis currently serves as the director of bands for the Broken Arrow School District and has enjoyed teaching band there since 1993. His groups have performed at Carnegie Hall, Music for All National Concert Band Festival, the Oklahoma Music Educators Convention, and have marched in the Tournament of Roses Parade. Broken Arrow is a 23-time Oklahoma State Marching Band champion, 13-time BOA Grand National Finalist, 15-time BOA Regional Champion, and 3-time BOA Grand National Champion. The Oklahoma Bandmasters Association honored Davis as their 2012 Band Director of the Year, and he's a national clinician and adjudicator for such organizations as Drum Corps International, Bands of America, the Fiesta Bowl National Band Championship, and numerous state band associations. Find Darren's full bio, show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. What was a high point for you in this interview, Alan? I like this overall analysis that the biggest culprits that plague marching bands are pulse and balance, both of which can be hard to discern as a player on the field. He has some pointers for those. What about you, Steve? Well, it's that concept from the cold open. I loved how he described the strategy of doing things wrong on purpose so students can get an idea of what it feels like and recognize it. Darren has so much good stuff for us that we've done something for the first time, a two-part episode. This is part two. At the end of the last cast, Darren was talking about week one versus week nine problems as they pertain to student leaders. Now we're switching over to talk about marching band specific stuff, but keep listening even if marching band isn't your discipline. A lot of this transfers. And make sure to check out part one if you haven't yet. Let's get to part two of our conversation with Darren Davis. So let's talk a little bit about those week one versus week nine problems or week two versus week eight. Thinking about your rehearsals, what are some common problems that you encounter from a visual standpoint? And what are some of your go-to methods for addressing those? There's two things that immediately come to mind. One is when it comes to teaching marching or visual fundamentals. I'm a strong believer, this may be controversial, but I'm a strong believer that sometimes you got to be able to demonstrate things improperly to be able to do it properly. You got to be able to do things the wrong way to identify the correct way to do it. We often like to say there's not a wrong way or a right way. Well, when it comes to visual fundamentals, it either is the same or it's the, it's not, right? And so that becomes our, our definition of what's right versus incorrect, I guess is a better way to say that. And so when it comes to, they say like body line and posture, what's the most common errors in body line and posture? Well, you know, at Broken Arrow, we want to have a, a strong body line from ankle, knee, you know, hip, shoulder, top of the head, and actually have what we call a little bit of 60, 40 lean forward and no sway in the back. Well, kids will arch their back or lean back with their shoulders. So I'll ask kids to do things incorrectly. And my staff will as well. Show me a C in the back. Show me poor posture by sticking your rear end out. Now give me your best posture. And the kids will go through that those different mechanics. And it's like, I think what we're building is mechanics of them feeling, oh, this is what he means when he says I have a C in the back. This is what he means when I says when I have good posture, you know, throughout that, I'll say, show me poor posture by having a short neck and raising your shoulders up to your ears and, you know, which looks really tense. Show me great posture by having the longest neck possible and your shoulders down back and relaxed. 
so that you can breathe and play better. So there's a lot of through the fundamental process that we'll ask students and encourage them to show uh, as we dictate that and and through the, the the teaching process, you know, demonstrate things incorrectly so that we can do it all look the same. That's just incredibly key and has been a game changer. That's something that we haven't always done, but in recent years that we've adopted that philosophy and it, it really seems to work on, particularly when it comes to visual fundamentals. Can you use that same approach visually, not fundamentals, but in teaching drill, like take a curve path to your dot or take an uneven step size, do it, do it wrong on purpose. Do you experiment with it that way or so far just with the fundamentals? There are aspects where you would certainly, I think, see that go into, uh, you know, to path and to form as you get onto the field. As a caveat, I, I don't think we ever want our kids to demonstrate something musically and, you know, with a bad tone or, but maybe there's even an opportunity for that, you know, show us what an unfocused sound is with your Amisher, show us that focus sound. So maybe there are, you know, we don't use that as much musically, but, you know, as I'm sitting here visiting week right now, I'm kind of have things firing off my head that maybe we need to try this in our next rehearsals to develop tone and to develop a clarity of articulation. I will say I use that in concert band and jazz band rehearsal. I haven't ever thought about doing it incorrectly visually, but certainly, and when it comes to teaching swing style, for example, I might with the jazz band say, okay, let's accent the downbeats really heavily now. Okay, great. Don't do that again. Or let's clip off the downbeats or let's, let's do a tongue stop with the staccato instead of an air stop. Those types of things. I've found the same success with you that sometimes when the student feels what it's like to do it wrong, or hears it, then they're much more quickly going to identify it, self-identify it and fix it on their own. But I'd never thought about applying that from a visual standpoint. Yeah. The, the other thing that I think is a common problem that we, I hope it's not just a broken arrow thing, but teaching students to read and find their coordinate or their dot on the field. It, it seems to be a process, right? That is not just a broken arrow thing. So go ahead and uh, let, let's spend a little time talking about this and what has worked or hasn't worked for you over the years. Well, I guess with differentiated learning, right? That's probably the most educational term that we can come up with. So the, I think that we've found we've had more success the, when we can find more ways and tactile ways for the kids to internalize and to learn that process. We'll spend time with the students in the band hall, we'll drop down a video and show a video of, of a field. And, you know, we could even do this with a marker board if you don't have a video projector and, and start just talking about field geography. And then when you're doing marching fundamentals, start relating from what they saw visually on, on a whiteboard or on a video screen to actually being on the field, you know, just where are the major geography moments, you know, where's the front sideline, back sideline, you know, those different marker points. We have a couple, you know, PowerPoint things that we use with the kids to help them, but it never seems to like permeate with many students. And so we even will do a drill test where I have like 10 coordinates on a, we use Pyware and we'll print out the coordinate pages and have the students, you know, take a blank, we'll give them a, a copy of a blank field and actually have them plot those points onto a, a field. And I make that seniors and drum majors will grade those and get those to me. And so we can start figuring out, okay, maybe these students don't understand. Uh, we need to get some more information to help that. My staff is so frustrated as we go through this process that I'm the person up at the top of the box trying to teach drill. I want to go as quickly as I can. I like, I like a fast paced rehearsal. Staff says, no, we got to slow down. We've got to slow down when we're doing these initial 
um, moments of learning drill and allow the kids to fail. <laughs> and, I'll, you know, almost to the point where staff says, read, you know, I can hear them um, shouting from the, the, the field to up where I'm the field level. So all the kids can hear, read all the words through your coordinate page and go set it. And we, there's a time where we don't give them any help and we don't allow them to help each other. And that lets us help, you know, figure out who needs more information um, to be able to learn that coordinate. And, you know, I, maybe I need to bring in math teachers, you know, the teeth and they do plotting of, of X, Y grids. So I'm open to information that you, any, that any of our listeners or you have to, to make that process more successful. Well, you just, gave me an idea. So you talk about Pyware and I, I guess, what would it have been now? Maybe 20-ish years ago when it really became the norm that we're going to stop handing out the full pages of drill to every student in the band. And we're, we have these coordinate sheets. And then you also mentioned that we have different learning styles. And I think for the students who, as we have discovered, if they read well, then they're probably going to figure out quickly how to understand musical notation when they're in fifth and sixth grade. And regardless of what musical skills they have, if they can read symbols pretty well and we're teaching band in a group setting, they're going to figure out pretty quickly, oh, this means this, this means that. If they don't read well, regardless of their musical abilities, they're probably going to struggle. I'm wondering, similarly with these coordinate sheets that we have all adopted, if you have a brain that just sort of works mathematically for that, those are going to make sense. And if you don't, you're going to struggle. What do you think if I say, hey, why do we have to hand the coordinate sheets to everybody? For some students who are maybe more visual learners, let's go ahead and just print out all 90 pages of drill or whatever and let them see where they are on the field as it relates to everybody else. Yeah, I think that's could be as we keep talking about differentiated learning styles. I mean, that's would just be catering to every student. So I'm very much intrigued by that and think that that could be really positive. I'm also intrigued by this UDB, this ultimate drill book um, stuff as I learned from that, which is incorporated. If you do have a Pyware file, it can you can load that in and students can see on their device. The drawback to that is their subscription fee. Actually, during the COVID year, we actually learned drill and tried to pilot it with using UDB. I think they're a great service. And I think there's some great opportunities where the kids can see their path and see the drill move on their device. I wasn't a fan of the uh, financial investment and had and kind of constantly have to weigh that out. There's i uh, I've heard of an application of some of that uh, big picture, little picture, different learning styles, applying that to memorizing music, to learning music. And there's a band that would do uh, different versions of sectionals. Um, one where students said, I, I learn best a measure at a time, just pound out one measure 20 times in a row. And then other students who said, you know what, eight bar phrases, that makes sense to me. My brain keeps that. And so, so the band would have different sectionals or, or like little memorization parties with those two different flocks of students. Uh, let's uh, use that to transition into musical issues. What are some of your favorite strategies, Darren, for teaching and refining the music through the course of a marching band season? I see lots of bands throughout the year. I, I also judge quite a bit and also adjudicate for, for Drum Corps International. So through the course of the summer and through the fall, I get to see a wide range and variety of performances, but it seems like there are a lot of similarities, even with some of the best groups in Drum Corps International that they're having to deal with. 
And to me, it can be boiled down to really just a couple things. And it's the same priorities that we have for the concert ensemble has to be the same for what it is outside. And we know this, if we don't play together, it's never going to sound right. And so pulse issues and balance issues tend to be the two biggest culprits that I think keep groups from succeeding at their fullest potential. So I'll just break, break that down uh, with a couple ideas that I have on pulse. As long as everyone understands the philosophy of how sound travels through space and time, and that it doesn't travel at the speed as, as our eyes do, that um, there has to be a pulse source on the field. And so if you're using the, that metronome, that it can't be on the front sideline, has to be in the back or behind the pocket of where the battery is. If we use a metronome, we actually have someone that will carry that behind where the pulse source is. And for every phrase, every phrase in the entire show, we identify where the pulse source is for the show. And it's not always the drum major. A lot of times the drum major is they're in a marriage relationship, <laughs> a give and take relationship with the center snare drummer for the majority of the show, because we, we identify that we want our percussion when they do play to be in great places where much of the band can listen when possible, listen to what's behind them versus watching. Now there are places where you do have to watch and it's about, you know, that what you see from the hands of the drum major, you may have to play fast, you know, ahead of what you see in the hands of the drum major to create that internalization of pulse. That could be an entire clinic or an entire podcast is to dig into that. But if we don't play together, nothing else is really going to matter um, with, with how things sound. So when you move to balance issues, first, it's got to be about the quality of the sounds or the sounds is you have, we have to be concerned as band directors that how we sound in August has to be our same concern with how they sound in March or April on the concert stage. Can't be any difference. And there's not a such thing as a marching band sound and a concert band sound. They're band sounds. The smaller your ensemble, you shouldn't try to produce more sound than what your smaller ensemble can produce. And what I love about small bands, they have can maximize their potential more than the larger bands can because they can play things more sensitively than the larger bands can. And so use that to your advantage. What I want to hear when I go listen to other groups is the clarity of the musical line. Again, same priorities as our concert bands apply to the marching band. That pyramid balance is great for tuning a chord, but it doesn't work for clarity of the musical line. When the trumpets or the clarinets have the melody, you can't have the lows playing more in the accompaniment than what the clarity of the line is. You know, and that seems counterintuitive to what we keep saying, you know, we keep being taught about pyramid balance. Well, pyramid balance is for vertical sonorities, right? It's not for the, the direction of the musical line. And so we use two things. We use have kind of a default grid on the field that because of your positioning on the field, it will change where you are in the balance. If you are in the front center of the field, the default is that you play with 15% less sound than you do normally. If you are in the very middle of the field, that's flat. You play the way you normally would. If you're in the back third of the field in the center, you have to play 15% more so that we can hear, so we don't just hear those people in the very front of the field. Now, I'll say a lot about Broken Air. I'm really proud of how our, our band sounds, and I'm really most proud of how we sound on the field. If you were to come to a Broken Arrow uh, music rehearsal and we are in, say, concert arcs, you would probably say that sounds pretty terrible. 
And the simple reason is this, is we ask our students to not that once we set things in the, in the field with what the field geography is musically, you do not play any differently when you're in the concert arcs. So we do not try to craft the music in the concert arcs because it's going to sound different when you put on the field and then you got to start all over again. Right. For that reason, we don't do the, particularly later in the season, we rarely will rehearse the music in the concert arcs. It's almost always in the field sets because that's where it matters. How many times do we say or have said as band directors, man, my band sounds incredible standing still in concert arcs, but it just doesn't sound the same when we get on the field. Well, why is that? That's because of the geography and the space that we are. If I could impress upon our listeners is to to take that notion that you've got to balance it to the field sets and don't try to change the way the kids play when you come in the band hall to play or if you're in concert arcs in the end zone or something before you go out on the field. To me, that's just critical, critical, critical in achieving the quality of sound that you want that you're going to be really proud of at the end of the season. Yeah, that's great advice. I love this idea. So in practical application, does that look like, all right, we're going to practice uh, set 37 to 38, these four measures, and we're going to do this a dozen times. Do it again, tubas, you were too loud. Do it again, clarinets, more of you. All right, we got that. Now we'll do it four or five times and solidify it. All right, remember what you're doing for that particular four measures for volume and, and commit it to, is that more or less what that looks like or? More or less. And so so we don't have to like reinvent the wheel for every single set. I have a drill chart divided into thirds, front third of the hash mark, hash mark, front third, middle third, back third. And then if you can think left to right, you could slide it wherever you want, but we use zero to 30 yard line inside the thirties and outside the thirties. And so we have a kind of a, a graph and it says, if you're in this, this quadrant of the field, you know, here's where you're flat on your, you know, for us to start with, you play it the way that we taught you, you know, that you learned in the arcs. And then if you're in that front middle uh, of the field, right down front in the power zone, you, that's your 15% less. It's those percentages that we talk about. So it gives us at least a baseline to start from. And then you start dialing in and tweaking, right? You know, and going, oh, it, it, here the, the the trumpets have the line, the clarity of the line, but they're not in the front third of the field. They're they're out to the side a little bit. So we got to balance the band to, to match so we get the clarity of the trumpet line or the, you know, if, if it's a, a woodwind moment, um, percussion, you can't overplay or do some create clarity of the line percussion about maybe on the, we use a lot of broken air on the back ends of the sticks is the a little rubber bead and you can buy the sticks that way or do it yourself. Um, flip the sticks over and play on the rubber, rubber tips on the rubber ends that we do that a lot when the woodwinds play, but we still want to have pulse in the percussion writing. So if there's not, you know, drums, you're too loud, <laughs> you know, we can still hear what you want to hear. And you've already given us a, a gold mine as far as my next question goes, but I'm curious if if you've got anything to add in terms of common solutions to problems that don't require the time, money, or staffing your program has. Because I have to imagine a lot of people look at Broken Arrow and say, well, if I had that many band directors or that many kids or that much money to buy props and design shows, I my band would look and sound that good too. And we, you know, we know that's probably not quite that simple. So do you, do you sometimes see or hear a band when you're judging and think, here are some other things you could be doing differently that would not have cost you a dime? For sure. You know, the best show design and the most elaborate set costuming, but it, 
that's great if you have the budget. And if you don't, it really doesn't matter because it does come down to how well do you play and how well do you move? And as blunt as it can be, as most of us, we would spend, if we'll spend less time worrying about the bells and whistles and just worry about playing better and marching better, you're going to take care of a lot of things. I would say to take that to the next step, here's things that require zero money and zero talent. Kids being on time, kids having a positive attitude, being prepared, being coachable, like it takes no talent, using good body language. You know, when you get corrected, it broken era, they, if, if a kid ever does the palms up routine, the upperclassmen, they'll just gasp because they know that that's probably going to set Mr. Davis off on body language, you know, being coachable, you know, uh, having that being passionate about what you do. These are things that, you know, not only do they take zero financial investment, they have zero talent investment either. It just takes kids that are will be willing to be moldable and commit themselves to greatness. Are you noticing as drum corps and the, the top achieving BOA bands incorporate more story, more uh, electronics, amplification, props, et cetera, that some band directors, it's become easier for them to focus more on that and less on how we play and move. I mean, in 1993, when when there weren't the props and the stories and the narration and the electronic, that was all we had. So pretty much everybody was focusing on moving well and playing well. I'm curious in your judging, are you noticing a trend where there is a collection or or a type of, of program or director that is just really letting themselves focus on that a little too much at the expense of the stuff that really matters for sure and the pendulum has is definitely has swung towards this and dci does, has not really helped us when with what we see and hear from drum corps international and that's where we have to understand that dci is a total different activity than what we as band directors do it's a, it's totally different philosophy and where we have to be about music music education priority one that's what we have to keep the main thing the main thing and so it's easy to, to get into, well, if I spend this money on electronics, it will make my band sound better. No, what makes your band sound better is your band sounding better by how you, you the qualities of the skills that your students demonstrate and teach. Now, I do think, you know, it would be easy for a listener to say, but wait a minute, Darren, I, you know, I've seen and heard Broken Arrow and you have these cool electronic things that you do. Well, we use that as, as an enhancement. It's not a replacement for anything. And I think that's where I get frustrated when it comes to electronics is it's seen as the crutch to replace the efforts of the student musicians. I think that there are appropriate uses of electronics, which is a big word that could mean synthetic sounds, amplification of acoustic sounds or sampled sound effects. I think if it's used right, there's ways to, that it creates and extends the, the musical palette. I mean, let's face it, Stephen Bryant, guy's brilliant. And one of my favorite pieces that he's ever uh, written is Ecstatic Waters, which uses electronics in all of those different formats, but it's never a replacement. It's an enhancement and addition. And so that should carry over to what we do outside. It should not be that I'm going to use a synthesizer so that you can hear my tubas. That's not the use of, to me, the appropriate use of electronics. Well, Darren Davis, thank you so much for joining us today to share your insights on what we thought would be a marching band specific show, but ended up having 
so much material that's going to be applicable to teachers of all subjects. Are you willing to uh, close down with a lightning round on some lighter topics? Sure, let's go for it. All right, what's the best place to eat in Tulsa, Oklahoma? Barbecue, Burn Co. There is Texas barbecue and Carolina barbecue, but I'm a fan of the Oklahoma barbecue. Burn Co. is the place. A musical artist or piece of music that you wish more people knew about? Stephen Giuliani is a composer that the President's Own just premiered piece of his at Memorial Day concert. I'm really intrigued by his stuff and trying to learn more about his music. A book recommendation for our listeners that doesn't have anything to do with music or teaching. Last summer when I went on vacation, I read, found a book by Jake Tapper, of all things, the guy from what the CNN program was the Hellfire Club. And then he's since then had another one that I've just started reading. That's um, The Devil May, May Dance by Jake Tapper is what I just started reading. All right. Hopefully this isn't too controversial in your neck of the woods. Sooners or Cowboys? Well, I live in a house divided, but I'm Oklahoma Sooners all the way. And finally, if you weren't a musician or teacher, what career do you think you would have had? You know what? I would have been a civil engineer and followed in my dad's footsteps. I think some of that analytical side has really benefited me to balance out the creative side uh, of what my skills are. Aaron Davis, I have always wanted to pick your brain, and I know a lot of other people who have always wanted to to hear these things from you. This has been so great. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your your wisdom and your experience with us. Steve and Alan, I really appreciate you guys inviting me on, and I really enjoyed our our conversation today and would love to visit with you and any of our listeners more often. You can always reach out to me at any time if you have any questions. My email address at the school is ddavis1 at baschools.org. If you ever have a question, just feel free to reach out. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website and let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.